how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, and more, where we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and methods of a creative life. This episode is brought to you by FreelancerClass.com. At FreelancerClass, you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money as a writer, marketer, graphic designer, virtual assistant, or an accountant from the comfort of your own home. Make a little extra money or replace your income at FreelancerClass.com. Documentary filmmaker John Albert talks about why he originally went to Cuba in the 1970s, the first time he met Fidel Castro, and what made him return again and again over the past 50 years. In this first-hand look, Albert talks about changing technology over the years, first-person versus third-person filmmaking, and the importance of having a good editor. Uh, Cuba was sort of this flashing light over the horizon, notifying us that they were trying to implement things that we were fighting for and unsuccessfully fighting for in New York City. We were trying to get better health care. We were trying to get universal free education. We were trying to get better housing. And we weren't succeeding. And it was very frustrating. And we heard that these type of programs were being implemented in Cuba. We also heard tales from the exiles that this was a horrific regime. And we really wanted to see for ourselves. And so this was uh, sort of our stubborn New Yorkers not wanting to take anybody's word for it and going there and, and looking at it personally. So you were a freelance journalist at the time, one of the first Americans to interview Fidel Castro. We see your conversations on camera. What were your feelings or your emotions in the room with him? Uh, well, initially, the first time Fidel came up to us, uh, I was too frightened to talk to him. Uh, I'd never had any experience uh, speaking with a world leader before. And Fidel had watched us chase him around Cuba, and we were carrying all our equipment in a baby carriage. And he saw these three weird New Yorkers in this weird baby carriage and the first generation of baby equipment. It was really quite unique in those days. And his curiosity got the better of him, and he came over and initiated a conversation, at which point I clammed up and just sort of duh, 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 stuttered until he shrugged his shoulders and walked away. And, and, and I was, I think my first reaction to meeting Fidel was humiliation because I had basically been paralyzed. And um, there's nothing like failure. There's nothing like looking in the mirror and being ashamed of yourself to spur you on. So the next time I saw Fidel, I practically tackled him. And ever since then, uh, we, we sort of had a pretty interesting relationship. Many times over the years, you were only giving, given enough time to answer maybe one to three questions at most. How did you go about choosing those questions, or what advice would you have for someone who gets that once-in-a-lifetime chance? So uh, initially, I had one or two questions, but on subsequent visits with Fidel, I spent very, very long periods of time with him. 
days with him uh, in in which I got to see things. I don't think any even the Cubans didn't know where he sleeps, where he stays, where he what he eats, uh, what's in his refrigerator. Uh, stories about his love life when he was living here in New York City uh, on West 80-something Street and thinking of going to Harvard Law School. It, it was really fascinating, and uh, he, I was asking questions his, and, and, and sort of pushing myself into places that horrified his security team, and Fidel was uh, quite happy to share all these memories with me. So you've been filming in Cuba for you know, 50 years. How did you possibly go about narrowing down that footage for a single movie? Uh, it was hard. I had a really good editor, Dave Manessis. We spent a lot of time in the editing room. With Netflix support, I was able to go back to all my original tapes, the ones that had survived. Some of them had perished over the years, but uh, put them through a restorative process so that we could look at all this material and you keep looking at it and you keep looking at it. It's like a chef who keeps reducing the sauce on the top of the stove until you boil it down to the essence. And there's lots of nice things that got left behind, especially things having to do with Fidel. But uh, we tried as best we could within an hour and 50 minutes to tell the story of 45 years of Cuba. Um, are you always rolling? How do you go about getting all of this footage? Is there something that you missed in terms of you didn't have the camera with you at the time? And, and how did you go about that? Uh, that camera is basically attached to my body all the time. And wherever I went in Cuba, the camera was with me, except the last time that uh, I saw Fidel. We, we were told that we had to leave the camera in the trunk of the car. So the record of that last meeting with Fidel, probably the last meeting that any American had with him, is just through photographs. And we were only supposed to spend 15 minutes with Fidel. I'm sort of giving away part of the film in which you're wondering whether I see Fidel one last time. There's still a lot of reasons for you to watch the film, so, so, so don't let me discourage you. But we were only supposed to spend 15 minutes with Fidel, and Fidel, he didn't want to let us go. He, he remembered so many things about all our previous encounters, had so many things he was excited to talk with me about. Uh, we actually sang some songs together. I was there for about three and a half hours, and his family decided, based on that visit, that they were going to relax the prohibition and grant one last interview. This was going to be Fidel's last tape, and I was going to make it. Uh, and they said, come back in a month, but they postponed it because Fidel wasn't feeling well. They postponed it again. Uh, we were promised that the next month we would be able to come down there with our cameras and conduct the last interview, and then he died. So uh, I had a last meeting with him, but it's the one part of the film it's not in video. It is only uh, recorded with photographs. No one could make this film but you, it would appear, with all the footage and your years spent over there and, and that first chance encounter. How would you advise new filmmakers to choose their projects? I think they have to have uh, some type of passion inside. It's very hard making any type of documentary film. We don't get a lot of resources at our disposal. There are people who are always trying to prevent you from filming what needs to be filmed. And, and if you don't have something driving you that enables you to walk through that fire day after day after day, um, you're going to get your feet burned off and you're not going to get to the destination. So um, I'm advising you, if you're undertaking a project, it has to be something that you believe is so important that you are going to overcome all these obstacles in order to make the film. It's got to be burning inside your heart every single day. 
Um, over your years making this film, have any of your beliefs or behaviors changed as a filmmaker? When I went down to Cuba, I was a horrible filmmaker. I was a horrible cameraman. I was a, I, I don't think you could even call me a journalist. And I hope over the years that I've improved in all those categories, uh, the proof is going to be in the pudding, and I hope that I'll get feedback from the audience. I poured my heart, my soul, and, and, and decades of my life into this movie because I felt it was important that the American people see what was going on in Cuba, something that was really hard for Americans to know about because of the relationship between the two countries. And... Um, it's 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 important for me because there's lessons to be learned. There's lessons to be learned about different types of government. There's lessons to be learned about our place on Earth, about the effect that time takes on us, and also a lot of these issues are still issues that are current today. We haven't solved our healthcare problems, our housing problems, our educational problems, and some of the things that the Cubans were trying to do are things that we should be thinking about and trying to see if we could finally finally make our country even better. Uh, perhaps by applying some of these ideas. Back in the day, what originally made you want to be a filmmaker or journalist? What made you first pick up the camera? Uh, I had no intention of being a filmmaker or a journalist. I was a taxi cab driver. And we were fighting uh, against a corrupt union and some evil bosses, but with, with no success at all. Taxi drivers are a very difficult workforce to organize. You compete against your fellow workers. It's not like in a steel mill where it's everybody against the boss. It's every taxi driver against every other taxi driver, and you cut me off, and I cut you off in order to get the guy waving his hand on the corner. Low pay, zero security. My wife had gotten the first generation of early video cameras, and I thought, well, why don't I borrow this one day? And we went around to the garages, and we made a film that basically highlighted all the issues that were important to the taxi drivers. And we showed this at one of our union meetings. And it was like waving a magic wand over all these unruly cab drivers. And they all signed up to be on this committee, and they all began handing out leaflets. And, and I saw the power of media to try to accomplish the things that previously I had failed to do. And we began making films to improve our schools, these films worked, and there were changes that were implemented because of these films. And so it was these early experiences, seeing the power of media to improve people's lives, that moved me in the direction of becoming a filmmaker. Um, so this film's called Cuba and the Cameraman. How did you originally decide to you know, kind of be part of the subjects of the film? Was there ever a point where you were considering it as a, as a third-person type of film? Absolutely. In the beginning, for almost the first 15 years of the film, I relentlessly took myself out of everything, I took my voice out, uh, no on-camera appearances. All the reports I was doing from Cuba had no narration at all. To some degree, was my own, you know, maybe a stupid protest, but my protest against the way news was being made in those days where everything revolved around the correspondent and their stand-ups, and they were always standing between you and what was more interesting, what was happening uh, in Cuba or any other country. And so I worked completely without any on-camera appearances. But I began to understand that, that, that the people who were featured in this program were my friends. Uh, and there was a, a relationship and a trust between me and them that was a very, very important part of this story. 
And so in the latter part of the films, uh, often my daughter would film me with a second camera. And so you begin to see me more and more, maybe a little bit too much uh, towards the end of the film. And I become a character in the film as well. Um, we also get to see some of your gear in the film in those later parts, or, or possibly even when Castro's got your, I think your Sony camera. Um, how has that changed? I, mean, I know it's definitely a lot smaller than it was in the beginning, but how has how has your gear improved for the better over the years? Well, I mean, the telephone that I'm talking to you on right now is a hundred times better and a hundred times more powerful than the early video cameras. Those early video cameras were really, really primitive. Uh, they were very insensitive, so you needed a tremendous amount of light. The colors changed uh, rapidly for no reason at all while you were filming. The tape, <laughs> sorry, would sometimes spool out of control, and you think you're filming something, and gosh, you look down, and there's just a mountain of tape, and everything's ruined. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, it, this was very heavy in those days. It was very expensive. Even those cameras weren't weren't really your friend. They were as much your enemy. And so the evolution of uh, television technology, the evolution of filmmaking is represented in, in this film. And people who have been around, there aren't that many old geezers like me, but uh, people who started out around the same time as me get really excited to watch this film because each one of these uh, specific formats has its own look that we know immediately as we see it. And you see the, the, the entire evolution and development of modern technology in the, in the length of this film. Um, yeah, today, like a, a modern iPhone can film in 4K. I mean, is there, is there too much being made today? Do you think there still needs to be a little bit of preciousness that goes into what the subjects are about? Well, I think that we always dreamed in the early days. When we started our community, we have a, a community media center in Chinatown called Downtown Community TV Center. And we're the oldest, most honored community media center in the country. And one of our founding principles was to put hands in the power of communication, put it in the hands of people who normally are denied access to the media. And we taught classes, teaching people how to make their own films. We provided equipment free of charge. And gosh, now everybody does have the means of making their own film in their hands or in their back pocket. Uh, I don't think it's bad. Um, I, I still think there's a tremendous difference between the professionals and the responsibility and the skills of the professionals and the amateurs, but the fact that anybody can tell their story, and often there, there are groundbreaking amateur films that people make that alter what's going on in the country, that document things that are happening and are very, very important. Can you elaborate on what you mean by responsibility? I assume you mean like honesty and truthfulness, but do you mean more than that? Well, um, I think that over the years, uh, the importance of being truthful um, has, has become very, very important and something that I think about all the time when I'm making a film. Uh, I think about my responsibility to the subjects and what's going to happen to them after my camera goes home. There are ethical behaviors that are very, very important to me as a professional. Um, as, as an amateur and somebody who is just making their own movies, I, I don't think that it's the same world. So um, I operate and make my films in, 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 a, in a special way because I'm a professional. What do you think is the most common bad recommendations or bad advice you hear in your profession? I, I, well, I, I'm not sure that I've been listening to 
other people other than my mother. I think uh, I think I'm going to put this around that in terms of good advice uh, when you're making a film, think about your mother, think about her watching it, think about being able to communicate things clearly to her, and then after you make your film and you show it to your mother, listen to her feedback. And use that to improve your films. Uh, I put every single one of my films through the mother test, and it's been very, very important and helpful. Um, When you're making a film like this, are you shaping the film in any way? Are you kind of looking for certain certain answers from people? Or are you letting the film kind of tell itself as you're you're making it? Well, I think you're certainly shaping it, especially in the editing room, uh, based on what you include and what you take out. But when you're out in the field... Um, as best you can, you're trying just to be a mirror that reflects what's going on, uh, and you're trying to capture everything in as objective a way as possible. Certainly your presence there, me as an American in Cuba, is going to have some sort of Heisenberg principle distortive effect on, on what's going on. But you try to be as objective as possible, and in the editing room you make choices, and this film is my choice of what I think will help you understand what life is like in Cuba. What's interesting is I've shown this film to a wide range of audience. I've shown it to Cuban diplomats. I've shown it to people who hate the government and who left Cuba, people who were jailed in Cuba, people who love Fidel, every possible flavor. And they all find the film very valuable. And every single one of them has recommended to their friends if you want to try to understand as best uh, possible what life in Cuba has been like for the past 50 years, this is a pretty objective view. I think your friendships in the film really make, especially when you're catching up with those that have, some have passed on, some have moved to America. Um, Luis, the, the person is doing very well as a business person. How do you view Cuba now? It has drastically changed in the last year as well. Do you see it as progressive? And, and what are your views now on Cuba? Um, I think that Cuba and the Cuban Revolution started with extraordinary promise. Uh, The Cuban Revolution was very romantic. You think of Fidel on a small boat the size of um, like a tiny fishing boat, uh, landing in the mountains, uh, a a successful revolution, the implementation of progressive social ideas, things that I think are core values uh, to most Americans, uh, and succeeding in implementing these things, it was very, very exciting. Um, I saw the day-to-day reality of this revolution aged. I saw the effect of the economic collapse there. Part of the economic collapse, uh, the United States played a big role in. We dumped our sugar reserves on the world market in 1977 when sugar was at an all-time high and and the Cuban Revolution uh, had a positive cash flow and they were building schools and hospitals and, and uh, we had a, had a role in, in, in ruining that. Uh, the other factor was the collapse of the Soviet Union. They provided the Cubans with an $8 million a day subsidy, so there was a, little, there was a great deal of propping up of that economy after the sugar prices collapsed. Uh, and then a sort of intransigent uh, economic policy and transigent leadership on the part of Fidel uh, was the other factor. And the Cuban economy has been stuck and stalled for, for decades. Uh, so a lot of the sort of everyday comfort of life promises that we take for granted in the United States have not been realized in Cuba. And you also have 
two generations removed from the initial revolution, people who don't remember remember what life was like under Batista, don't remember a country where nobody could read and write, uh, where there was um, extraordinary racial oppression. Um, they were the whorehouse of America. And, um, and, you know, 60 years later, these kids are thinking, how come when I turn the tap on the water faucet, nothing's come out for the last two weeks? So uh, we, we we observe all that in the film. So it's a it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty wide-eyed, objective view of what's happened in Cuba during these fifty years. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to get your free download of the ebook "How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block," which includes advice from writers such as Aaron Sorkin. William Monahan and Carrie Fukunaga. The newsletter will also keep you up to date on future episodes, new articles, and more. Sign up at BrockSwinson.com. B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com.